So, uh, how many people have some day off this week? Anybody have some time off this week for the holiday? Right, some time off, okay. Um, do you know what holiday was? Oh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, sometimes I wonder, I'm not so tuned in myself generally to holidays, except I know that all of a sudden, and I was in the city for the holiday, and it was like so easy to drive around everywhere. It's like, oh, this is great. I don't want to go anywhere on a holiday. Cause it's like, this is a holiday to be in San Francisco with no traffic and really even driving at night to movies and all kinds of things. Um, it, it was really fun. And then uh, I found out it was the 4th of July, and which is an interesting holiday. So I thought I would speak about it because it has some relationship in Buddhism. Right? The 4th of July is the day of in, independence, right? Independence Day. It's great. It's a great thing to celebrate our independence in uh, a real way, right? So, and of course, technically, it's an anniversary of the publication of the Declaration of Independence, that people declared independent from a, an authority, meaning England and the government of England. And, but there's such a beautiful line in there, in the Declaration, because I looked it up, because I thought, oh, have I ever read the Declaration of Independence? And I, you know, maybe I did when I was a kid. But it's got this beautiful line that says, we hold these truths. Remember, dharma means truth. We hold these dharmas, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all people are created equal, and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that, that, the, uh, that among these are life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, that's a beautiful teaching, and I don't care who that comes from. That's a beautiful teaching that we're all endowed by our birthright with these certain rights, the right to life and liberty and happiness. And um, I did change the language a little because it says, really technically it said, we hold these truths that be self-evident that all men are created equal. But that doesn't work. That's just not accurate because it's all people are created equal. And so, you know, we have to go back and change the Declaration of Independence, and I'm happy to do that. I don't have a problem with that. Um, but it, it also points to some of the lack of freedom that was present even when the Declaration of Independence was declared. There was some freedom being declared and pointed at and sought and desired by human beings. And they weren't totally aware of some of their um, unconscious bias, prejudice, you know, whether it had to do with even the fact that they had emigrated here from England and really uh, would not have survived except for the people who lived here before them. And then they mistreated them in 
many, many ways. There was definitely a genocide against the native peoples of this land. And so, um, and so I was reading a little bit about the declaration and then I got interested, okay, so who came here? And the, and the pilgrims who were considered the founders of Plymouth, Massachusetts, arrived in 1620. So that's a while ago, 1620. What were the pilgrims doing? What were they? Why were they coming here? So they were free, fleeing religious oppression. They were looking for freedom because of whatever was happening in England, uh, or if they came from any other countries, I'm not sure about that, but from England, there was some kind of oppression or um, or dukkha, right? The word dukkha means suffering that was being uh, put upon them because of their beliefs. And, um, and you know, and as I said, in both Virginia and Massachusetts were some of the first colonies from England, right? And the, the colonists were flourished with assistance from Native Americans because they wouldn't have made it otherwise. And what I also found out was, so this is 1620. In 1619, Africans were being imported as slaves to the U.S. already, even before the pilgrims came here, right? And that partly because of the Spanish who are already in South, what we now call South America or Florida. And so already this country, which is being declared its independence, and it's, it, it's talking about that all people are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable right rights, um, really weren't even living that, even though they were declaring it. And they didn't live it. And we're still learning how to live it together. And it's really part of the beauty of this country is that we can keep learning how to do it because we're not done learning how to do it. We're not done liberating ourselves and everybody else. And so it's, I think it's a fascinating holiday in that way. I also learned about there, there, the U.S. experienced successive waves of immigration from Europe, mostly, right? And the immigrants sometimes paid uh, the cost of their transportation. Their transatlantic uh, transportation was paid by becoming indentured servants on their arrival in the U.S. And so these are different minorities that may be from Ireland or from somewhere in Europe who then also become indentured servants, part of living in this country. And they're all seeking freedom, right? People who come here. It's, it is one of the, the United States seems to have this archetypal manifestation for people in the world as a place of freedom. And it does offer many freedoms that are possible. And so people came here seeking, like the pilgrims, religious freedom, 
also economic freedom or cultural freedom or class freedom or political freedom. And so the independence they sought was linked to freedom. And those words, both independence and being independent and freedom, are important words in Buddhism. And so I thought I would talk a little about that, about what does it mean to be independent in Buddhism. <clears throat> and, and so I'm going to quote now from the Buddha and from the Satipatthana Sutta, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And the, and the main um, refrain that happens, so, so the Buddha gives the four foundations, the mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feeling tone, mindfulness of uh, chitta, of mind, heart, right? Mind, heart are one thing in Buddhism at that era, right? And then mindfulness of dhammas, of the truth. Right? So there's four levels of mindfulness that the Buddha is offering us as our practice, as what we do here. And he says, this will lead to freedom. And after each one, after each one, mindfulness of the body, feelings, uh, uh, mind, heart, and then dharmas, he, there's a refrain that happens. And so in the first section, the refrain that goes, in this way, in regard to the body, one abides contemplating the body internally, one abide, or one abides contemplating the body externally, or one abides contemplating the body both internally and externally. And he continues, just still with the body, he says, or one abides contemplating the nature of arising in the body, or one abides the contemplating the nature of passing away in the body. Or one abides contemplating the nature of both arising and passing away in the body. Or mindful that there is a body is established in one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. And one abides independent. And one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. So this is the essence of the, of the teachings on mindfulness. And here I actually read at the end, I was looking at some books and seeing what other people said, and I found something from Joseph Goldstein, who was my first Dharma teacher uh, in Buddhism, and who I'm actually going to sit with. He's coming to Spirit Rock in a couple weeks. And I thought, oh, I'm going to go sit with Joseph. I want to see what the hell is he saying these days, or what's he teaching these days. And, and I have a lot of love for Joseph, and it'll be fun to see him and sit with him. And he says about this, he says, oh, the last line of the Satipatthana refrain unifies the pr practice of meditation with its goal. And one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world, this line encapsulates, encapsulates the entire path. This line encapsulates the entire path. Can you read the line again? The line again? Yeah, sure. Yeah, don't forget this. <laughs> 
So again, the Buddha goes through, you know, contemplating the body internally, externally, both internally and externally, contemplating it, um, it arising and passing the impermanent nature of things, right? One abides just the simplicity of there is a body to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. And then, and one abides independent, not clinging to anything in this world. That's a radical teaching, not clinging to anything in this world. And so I thought I would talk a little bit about some of the components of the refrain and then focus a little more about that last line. And so the internal, external, uh, one of the simple ways to understand that is we start to contemplate body, really it's body, heart, and mind, really, because it's all four foundations of mindfulness. One contemplates the inter one's internal experience, and that's what we're doing when we're sitting here. We're contemplating our body, our breathing, comfortable, uncomfortable, but also we're contemplating, oh, there are thoughts and feelings and all kinds of sounds and liking and not liking, and, and we're, we're contemplating it. We're not just identifying with it. We're aware of it. It's happening on its own. You know, we don't do almost any of that. It just happens on its own. The thoughts happen, even if you don't want to think. The feelings happen, even if you don't want to have a feeling. The sounds happen, even if you wished everybody was really quiet. You know, it's all happening on its own. And the practice is to be aware internally and then to be away exter be aware externally is to realize, oh, this is happening for everybody else. They're having thoughts and feelings and sounds and sights and tastes and touch and sensations. This is the human experience. It's alive everywhere. You can just look around the room. Just like your experience, it's happening in the person next to you. It may not be the same details, but it's the same phenomena. And, and being mindful internally affords us the practice of being able to be with others and see that they're not different from us, even though they have different experiences that we, than we have. <clears throat> and there's another thing I read. I'm not sure what this is. I'm not sure where it's from. It's from the Labuga, which is, I don't know what the text is, but it's a Buddhist text. Offers a convincing perspective um, presenting the contemplation of both internally and externally it points to an understanding of a complicated object, whatever it is, thoughts, feelings, sensations, whatever is happening, or, uh, um, uh, without considering it as part of one's own subjective experience or that of others. Practice in this way, it's just seen as an experience, and the experience can be happening here or there but it's the same nature of experience 
that's happening for all beings. And so you start to see, it says here, practice in this way, Satipatthana, the four foundations of mindfulness, contemplation shifts towards an increasingly, increasingly objective and detached stance from which the observed phenomena are experienced as such, as simply phenomena arising and passing, arising and passing, whether they're here or there. It's the same phenomena arising and passing. Another of the important pieces is the arising and passing that's talked about in the in the uh, refrain, right? The rising, in this case, of body, heart, and mind, or the passing of body, heart, and mind. It's the same piece that's pointed at slightly differently, which is in the ephemeralness of reality, of experience itself. It's all appearing, and it sustains for a moment or a while, and then it changes or it disappears. And we can't grab it. It's just impermanent. And it's not saying it's bad that it's impermanent or you should like that it's impermanent or not like that it's impermanent. But being aware of the impermanent nature of reality, right? Is everybody aware that things are impermanent? Anybody not aware? That's the, the right question, right? Because it just, it's all happening and is gone. Here's the personal uh, experience. I wasn't here last week, so I wanted to mention my apologies for not showing up and also happy my wife, Pamela, could go and substitute for me uh, last week. And, uh, uh, and I said, did you tell them what was happening? She said, no, I said you, were having, you weren't feeling well. I had vertigo. That's not fun. That's not my kind of, you know, oh, let's have some dharma fun. That was not dharma. That was dharma dukkha. And, uh, and it was so interesting how to watch how quickly the mind thinks this is going to happen forever. Because that's what it feels like when it's happening. It's powerful vertigo. And I've had it before, and then it's gone away totally. And I even knew it could go away totally. And so I had a lot of confidence. I went to see my physical therapist who cured me of vertigo one time. Like I saw her once and, and she did some weird magic body stuff. And, and, and it was like gone. It didn't come back for a year. And then, so, but here it was back. And so I went to see her the next morning. And she did all these things. And she's good and she knows what she's doing. Everything she did made it worse been really worse. I mean, I drove there. I was good enough to drive. I couldn't drive home. That's how much worse it got. And I was like, oh, shit, now I'm really in trouble. Now this is going to last forever. But even vertigo, it's just coming and going. And even the dizziness, there's ways to stabilize in the dizziness, right? Because you still have to move around a little or sometimes crawl around, whatever works, you know. Um, so, but everything is arising and passing, what we like and what we don't like. It's all arising and passing. And then the 
one of the other um, pieces here is about contemplation, contemplating the uh, a mindful that there is a body is established to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. Bare knowledge, continuous mindfulness uh, is so simple. It's just what's happening now. What's actually here now? Not what are we adding on to what's here? Not what are we imagining is here? What's actually here now? It's the recognition, to the, the ability to, to recognize what's here in this moment. And even right now, you could be aware of just what's happening for you. Liking, not liking, agreeing, not agreeing with whatever I'm saying, or wishing it was over, or not wish, oh, this is great, I hope he goes on for three hours. Probably not that, it's not, but, but really, but just being aware, or maybe your body's tired from the long weekend, whatever it is, just being and relaxing with what's actually here, because that's what's true. That's the Dharma for you right now. And that kind of simple awareness, sometimes it's called naked awareness, and I use the term because I saw a friend of mine who, she's a Tibetan practitioner and very wise, and but she always uses that word, naked. She talks about the naked feelings that she's been having because her husband died recently, and the naked grief she talked about and how that's all she was interested with, staying with the naked grief, because she's a, she knows how to practice, and that's part of practice. Mm-hmm. And as this is from the Venerable Analyo, who the quote was from his book, Venerable Analyo, he said, "The knowing quality of the mind, it is the the knowing quality of the mind that brings about understanding." Thus, while Satipatthana meditation takes place in a silently watchful state of mind, free from intellectualization, it can nevertheless make appropriate use of concepts to extend um, what's needed to further knowledge and awareness. And uh, he continues, he says, contemplation undertaken in this manner of just being aware of what's here has the sole purpose of enhancing mindfulness and understanding um, points to an important shift away from goal-oriented practice. At this comparatively advanced stage, Satipatthana is practiced for its own sake. We're simply mindful to be mindful. We're not even trying to get anywhere. And he goes on to say that it is precisely this way of contemplating that in turn enables one to proceed independently without clinging to anything in the world. Without clinging to prove it This way of contemplating that in turn enables one to proceed independently without clinging to anything in this world of our experiences and everything, right? So it's a radical understanding of the power of not clinging brings 
independence. And I believe it's the independence we all seek. We all seek to be, and I'll, I'll switch the word, we all seek to be free. And I would imagine in your own hearts and minds, there's some version of that freedom that you seek. And whatever way you language it, the freedom to be yourself, or the freedom to be real, or the freedom to love, or the freedom to be at peace, or the freedom to be happy, right? Whatever it takes, whatever flavor of the freedom you might have. Mm. And it is this great paradox, in my opinion, in Buddhism, about um, uh, freedom, because it's so simple, what the Buddha say, saying, don't cling. That's the whole deal. It's the whole teaching in some way. Right? It leads to being independent by not clinging to anything in the world. And of course, that brings up all kinds of ideas and questions for us about what we do love or care about or what's important to it. And what's the difference between loving and caring and being devoted to something and clinging to it. And that's an important discernment for us all to make. Because the Buddha doesn't say don't love or don't care or don't take care of or don't respect or <clears throat> or nourish something or someone. He just says, don't cling. Don't cling. He says, he has a great quote, the Buddha. He says, you can only lose what you cling to. If you don't cling to it, you can't lose it. That's interesting dharma right there. And of course, that means not even clinging to the goal of practice, which is really, at least for some of us, people like myself, I was really into clinging to awakening. I wanted awakening more than anything. It's very freeing to let go of that, like I have to have it. Always wanting it. And so it's talked about in different ways. Here, this is from the Dalai Lama. He said, one of the key paradoxes in Buddhism is that we need goals to be inspired, to grow, and to develop, even to become enlightened. But at the same time, we must not get overly fixated or attached to these aspirations. Right. If the goal is noble, your commitment to the goal should not be contingent on your ability to attain it. And in pursuit of our goal, we must release our rigid assumptions about how we must achieve it. Peace and equanimity come from letting go of our attachment to the goal and even letting go of the method. And he's a good person to say that because he's quite awake, the Dalai Lama. 
meaning I'm kidding a little. It's easy for him to say it because he's there. He's quite, quite a beautiful being. But he's also pointing at something for all of us to get, which is the aspiration is what's beautiful. And you can trust the aspiration without having to hold on to the aspiration. It's already here, the aspiration for all of you. I don't think any of you would be here if you didn't seek something. There's something here. And it's, I mean, I know I'm great and good and everything, but I'm not that great and good. You know, I'm good enough, but it's the Dharma that you seek, the truth that you seek. And whatever that freedom that that can bring for any of us. And so freedom then becomes an important component of what's being pointed at when uh, the Buddha talked about how one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. This is from Thich Nhat Hanh, who is a, uh, who is a Zen. I can't remember, did Thich Nhat Hanh die or he didn't die? He came very close to dying, but he didn't die. Um, uh, a Vietnamese monk who uh, has just stood out for peace and freedom for his whole life. He said, letting go gives us freedom. Letting go gives us freedom. And freedom is the only condition for happiness. Freedom is the only condition for happiness. If in our hearts we still cling to anything, anger, anxiety, possessions, we cannot be free. And so remember when you hear something like that, watch out for any spiritual superego if you're clinging to anything, because that's not so helpful. But it is important to begin to reflect, contemplate, discern, oh, what are we holding on to? What are we clinging to and why? Because really, we can't hold on to anything, really. So Thich Nhat Hanh was a Vietnamese monk. This is from Lama Suridas, who was a Westerner, who was a Tibetan teacher. He said, breath by breath, let go of fear, expectation, anger, regret, cravings, frustration, fatigue. Let go of the need for approval. Let go of old judgments and opinions. Die to all of that and fly free. Soar in the freedom of desirelessness. And the desirelessness is just not clinging to anything in the world. So you might reflect a little bit about what do you seek or what are you wanting or what are you desiring or what are you looking for? Even in Buddhist practice, are you looking for freedom? What kind of freedom? Some of us are seeking emotional freedom or some of us seek uh, psychological freedom or sometimes we're looking for um, individual freedom or religious freedom or political freedom or cultural freedom 
And I like the, the word freedom. It's been important to me personally, really my whole life. And, uh, and I could talk for quite a while about how, and how much it's guided my life in different ways way before I was interested in Buddhism because it was important as a young teenager who was having a hard time and was, uh, I was uh, incarcerated at 14, incarcerated in a public mental hospital in Detroit in a locked ward because I was having problems. And so freedom was always important for me and actually, and I don't mean to over-dramatize my uh, incarceration because it was very helpful the mental hospital that I was put in was actually quite quite helpful it was there were no there was no medications given at that time so I had a lot of help both I had an individual therapy group therapy family therapy occupational therapy I had a lot of therapy and, and it was good it was freeing actually and it freed me uh, from from the dukkha that I was experiencing as a young teenager. And uh, it was important to me because I lived in the 60s and, and I was against the, the uh, Vietnamese War. And uh, I was very pro many of the different um, uh, groups of people who were rising up because they had been oppressed in some way, whether it was the Young Lords who were a, a, a Chicano group in New, in New York City and other places, or the Black Panthers, or other groups that I was involved with, because I was very involved with radical political street theater when I was a young man in New York. And I was just reflecting on this, and I reflected upon the freedom for myself I did an interesting thing uh, some years ago is I did some ayahuasca. And ayahuasca is a, called a medicine that some people do and I was interested in it so I did it. And it's and the, what was interesting about ayahuasca because it's a religious medicine is that you, uh, you say a prayer that you offer a prayer of what you seek from the from her, that's what it, how how it's talked about in ayahuasca. You 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 ask you you offer a prayer about what you seek from her to be healed of and to be cared for because it's a healing medicine. It's considered. And I remember I kept looking for what did I want, and I kept remember. Oh, all I want is freedom. So all I want. His freedom, and so that's what I asked for. And it was very interesting how it manifested through that medicine. And I'm not saying, oh, go do that or anything, or or don't do that. It's not my job to. Uh, but I'm just saying a little bit about how the freedom has manifested in my life. And even today, it's like, oh yeah, what's more important than being free? And also, I just look at the whole world, and people are just seeking freedom. And there's so much dukkha, there's so much oppression, there's so much misery in the world because of whatever it is, whether it's nationalistic or 
cultural or political or economic oppression. <clears throat> so, so the Buddha said when talking about freedom, freedom is the essence of all things. Freedom is the essence of all things. That's a beautiful quote. I hope it's accurate. It's, I'm quoting Ram Dass, and Ram Dass can be a little off and on once in a while about his quotes. He makes some Ram Dass quotes. But even still, quite beautiful. Freedom is the essence of all things. And as I said, I, I saw what Joseph Goldstein was saying about um, uh, this refrain. Right. He says, one of the great discoveries as we proceed along the path is that on one level, birth and death, existence and non-existence, self and other are the great defining themes of our life. On the other hand, we come to understand that all experience is just a show of appearances. Right? It's just things arising and passing. It's just life happening. Right? This understanding points to another aspect of abiding independently, not clinging to anything in the world. That is, not being attached through views and through ideas and through beliefs and even the belief in the sense of self, but being relaxed about it instead of attached to it. I'm adding on Eugene's commentary about Joseph because I want to make sure he's clear. And I'll, I'll tell him that when I see him. Uh, and I'll end with one of my favorite Buddhist teachings from the Buddha. Um, who's talking to Bahia, Bahia of the bark cloth, and Bahia was a practitioner who sought to awaken, thought he was awake. The devas, the gods, come down and tell him, no, no, you're not there. You're, you're not even doing the right practice. He says, where can, I, where can I find the right practice? And they tell him, oh, there's a Buddha. And he goes to see the Buddha, and then, you know, I, Mythologically, overnight, he goes some hundred miles. He walks a few hundred miles and finds the Buddha, and he asks for the teachings. And um, and the Buddha says, "No, I won't give you the teachings, because the Buddha's its arms round, and the Buddha is going out with his bowl to get lunch." And and Bahia goes and. Uh, he says, well, wait, 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 wait. This is really important. I, I went, can't you give me the briefest of teachings? And, and the Buddha's like, you know, I'm hungry. I'm, I've got to go for lunch. This is Eugene's version of this. Let's be clear about that. And Bahia trumps the Buddha. He said, but please, please, we don't know if I'm going to live or you're going to live because things could change in a moment. And the Buddha, he trumps him with impermanence, right? And so the Buddha says, okay, here's the teaching. 
and the Buddha says to Bahia, in the scene, there is only the scene. In the herd, there is only the herd. In the sense, which means smell or taste or touch, in the sense, there is only the sense. And in the cognized thought, there is only the cognized. This Bahia is how you should train yourself meaning Eugene commentary, this is how to practice with the simplicity of being. He said, when Bahia, there is for you in the scene, only the scene, in the herd, only the herd, in the sensed, only the sense, in the cognized, only the cognized, then Bahia, there is no you in connection with that. When Bahia, there is no you there, then Bahia, you are neither here, nor there, nor in between the two. Just this, this, just this, is the end of suffering. Beautiful teaching from the Buddha. The simplicity of being that is possible for us as we practice. So those are a few words about the 4th of July and the Declaration of Independence.